This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Good evening. First, it was the IT guy. Now members of the Mar-a-Lago household staff might also end up testifying against the boss. That's what multiple people familiar with special counsel Jack Smith's classified documents investigation are telling us, and it's a CNN exclusive. They say federal prosecutors may call as witnesses a plumber, a maid who cleaned the former president's bedroom, a chauffeur, and a woodworker. People who might not get a lot of attention on a Trump property, but who see and hear a lot on the job. People who CNN has also learned have already been talking in detail to investigators. They're now likely witnesses. So are Secret Service agents, sources tell us, and others who were in the room when the former president was captured on multiple recordings, apparently showing off a classified military document about bombing Iran. Wait a minute, let's see here. (laughs) I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, it's so. I'm, look, we here and I have. A, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe It's incredible, it. right? No, they, hey, bring they some, uh, bring some cokes in, please. Want. We don't know who brought the cokes, but you'll remember that Walt Nauta, the man who once served as former president's White House valet and who still works for him, is now a co-defendant in the documents case. Join us now, sharing a byline on the exclusive CNN's Caitlin Polance. Caitlin, so what more do you know about who might be called to testify? Anderson, it very well could be the person who brought the cokes. We don't know who it was, but it could be that person. What we do know, though, is that there is a long list of potential witnesses in this case that we've been able to cobble together, and they are people that are notable people around Donald Trump during his presidency, after his presidency at his club. But there are also people who are moving in and out of the club who might not have been that noticed by the club visitors who were there, or even Trump himself, but they were people who noticed things. And the things that they noticed, we heard about a woodworker, for instance, someone who was installing crown molding in Trump's bedroom, and that person noticed a stack of documents that looked rather suspicious, so suspicious to him that he thought they were movie props, looked like classified records of some sort. That person, we were told, doesn't actually know what he saw, but this is the sort of person who could be called to testify at this trial in Florida to provide the picture of what it was like around Mar-a-Lago where all of these images that we've seen in photographs exist of documents and boxes. And there were real people there in these spaces moving about, a maid, a plumber, a chauffeur as well, knowing that something was off and thinking about that and then relaying that to investigators. Have prosecutors laid out why they think these individuals would be good witnesses? They haven't, Anderson. And we we don't know whether they will for sure be called to testify in this case. They might not be. But our understanding is that they are people that spoke to investigators, some of them multiple times. Some of them testified before a grand jury in this case. And when you look at them on the whole, it appears that they are the people who provide this picture of what it was like at Mar-a-Lago after the Trump presidency, how Trump himself was functioning, um, how he was behaving, and where these classified documents may have gone, how they have moved, who may have touched them, and who may have been around them on a day-to-day basis. And what's the former president's reaction been to all this? 
Well, one of the things that we heard is, as Paula Reed and I were reporting out this story uh, was that he's been quite protective of his fiefdom. So Mar-a-Lago in Florida, this club he spent so much time at, when he heard that the maid who cleans his bedroom suites um, was someone that investigators wanted to talk to and who could be a potential witness in this case, when he heard about that, he went ballistic, we were told. Uh, and he's been quite unhappy whenever he's learned about the people who were being approached by investigators. But the other thing is that is important to note is how his lawyers are responding to this case. And what's happening right now, Anderson, is that they are trying to get this trial pushed after the election next year. We're waiting to see what the judge does right now. It is set for May. She has said she's going to tell us if that date will hold, if there will be other dates that we're moving. And that's a really important thing because... There's a difference here between these people that live in South Florida, that work around Donald Trump, that worked at the club. Are they going to tell their stories publicly before the election or not? Do, by the way, do we know, do they still work at the club? Some of them do. Some of them have left. Um, as we were reporting out the story, I was learning more and more about people who left. And actually, one person who was initially having a lawyer from the Trump legal fold uh, and got a new lawyer and cut in a cooperation agreement um, with the prosecutors in this case to become a key witness. That person, his name's Yusil Tavares. Uh, he was still working at the club in recent months and then left just because the start of the season was coming around and he felt it was time for him to leave working uh, at Mar-a-Lago. He put in his resignation letter and then Trump uh, was very unhappy that he had actually stayed on as an employee at the club after he had been sharing information that was damaging to the for pre former president with prosecutors. Yeah. Caitlin Polance, thanks. With me uh, here, CNN Senior Legal Analyst, former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig, also CNN's Caitlin Collins, host of The Source, coming up at 9 o'clock. Ellie, how potentially important could these witnesses be? I mean, this is a dream scenario for prosecutors, and let me explain why. Ordinarily, in the federal system, when you're a prosecutor, you build your case on the back of a cooperator, somebody who was part of the crime, who's pled guilty, who's now your witness. So what happens? The defense lawyers stand up in closing, and they say, folks, you're going to convict my client based on the word of a criminal? And then we prosecutors stand up and say to the jury— Look, we'd love to call honest, hardworking people to come in here and tell you about a crime, but that type of person isn't on the inside of a crime. Here, they're literally on the inside of a crime. These are honest, hardworking, regular folks, had nothing to do with the crime. They're inside the bedrooms, inside the closets. And even if they can't give the whole story A to Z, they can give important details. They saw a box here or there. They overheard a conversation. So if I'm a prosecutor, this is the best case scenario. Is it clear what Trump world thinks of all this? I mean, they've kind of known that a lot of these people had been called in to speak to investigators. A lot of these people didn't know what to do. I mean, Yusel Tavares, that, that Caitlin just mentioned there, who was still working there. I mean, Trump's not really there a ton during the summer. He starts to about this time of year. These were just regular people working these kind of day jobs. Some of them have now been ensnared in this. One of them is named as a co-defendant. Some of them, you know, Yusel was still working there up until recently when he offered his resignation letter. They, we were told, you know, it wasn't because of that Trump found out, but they kind of happened around the same time as one another. Uh, what Caitlin said about the maid there. Have an HR department there? I mean, like, <laughs> no, can, can you be fired if, I mean, if you don't want to. You're getting wanna, caught in yeah. witness in the investigation. <laughs> yeah, I'm not um, sure what the. I don't think they have any liaisons uh, to help them that I've found out about. But the, the maid part that Trump went ballistic over finding out that the maid was asked to speak with investigators. I had heard that as well. Part of it was because I was told it was a maid who often went into Melania Trump's suite and cleaned that. And anything legal dealing with Trump that involves Melania and mm. irritates him because then he's the one getting, you know, in trouble with her. I mean, Ellie, cross-examining employees, it, it, I mean, 
Will they be tried to be painted as anti-Trump somehow or? So the smart way to do a cross-examination of a witness like this is just point out that they have limited knowledge. Okay, maybe you saw a box in this closet, but you don't know how it got there. You don't know who took it out of there. You didn't hear conversations around it. You try to sort of limit the impact. What I think Trump's team is likely to do is just that is rage, is claim that they're anti-Trump, claim that they have an agenda. I think the former is the more uh, effective way to go here. But I wouldn't bet on them doing that. But a lot of these people like Trump. I mean, they worked yeah. for him. They don't see him in the view of like a political lens. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, he was the president, but also he is their boss and he's the one who employs them at the club. And so that's, I think, something yeah. with Carlos, one of the other defendants who was named later on in a superseding indictment. That's an important thing to keep in mind because these are people who are pretty loyal to him in that sense. But, you know, they're not wealthy. They don't have a ton of resources and they've been called before investigators. They can't exactly... Uh, go out and just hire their own attorneys. A lot of them have Trump-provided attorneys. So I think that raises another question here as well. This makes them even better witnesses. If they don't have an axe to grind with Trump, I, I also love the fact, looking at this from a prosecutor's point of view, that they're not high-profile, bold-faced DC insiders. They're not Sidney Powell. They're not Mark Meadows. They're just regular folks. And ultimately, who you have to appeal to in a jury trial is the jurors, who are going to have the same kind of jobs as these people have and see them as relatable. And to the lawyer point that Caitlin raised, this is a, a time-tested Trump tactic. He pays for his own lawyers, of course, but he pays for lawyers for everyone around him, which naturally, it's not illegal to do that, it's common, but it naturally has the effect of deterring potential cooperation. But these folks, they get subpoenas, they understand they have to tell the truth, and at least some of them have done just that. And what about the Secret Service agents? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. This actually came up in the Clinton investigation by Ken Starr in 98. Ken Starr wanted to talk to some of Bill Clinton's Secret Service agents. What did you see in here? It was litigated. It was fought in court, and the court said they can testify. There's not some special privilege or protection for Secret Service agents. So I think prosecutors need to be careful here. You don't want to create a situation where Secret Service agents are maybe trying to distance themselves so they don't hear something. That could be dangerous. But yes, if necessary, you can get testimony from Secret Service agents. But the judge may, I mean, this may not even go to trial before the election. Yeah. Um, She's hinted that she could very well push it past the election. Judge Cannon has. Yeah. yeah, I think it's fairly likely she does that. We're already looking at a May trial date. But remember, we have a March date two months earlier on the federal January 6th trial. And I think what this judge doesn't want to do is make Trump go to two trials essentially consecutively. All right. Ellie Honig, thanks. Caitlin Collins, we'll see you at 9 o'clock. Um, also, uh, Caitlin's going to be uh, interviewing the former Trump attorney, Jim Trusty, his first CNN interview since resigning from the Trump legal team. So we'll look forward to seeing that at 9 o'clock. Perspective on this now, fresh from last night's Republican presidential debate, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who's also, as you might know, a former U.S. attorney governor. Good to see you. So CNN just reported that a plumber, a maid, a chauffeur, and a woodworker are among Mar-a-Lago staffers and contract workers who federal prosecutors may call to testify against former President Trump and his two co-defendants at the, the classified documents trial. Does that indicate anything to you about the, the depth of the prosecution's case? The breadth and the depth of the prosecution's case, Anderson, as you know, um, I did this for seven years as the U.S. attorney in the fifth largest office in the country. We did over 130 uh, political corruption cases without a defeat. Um, what you want to see in a witness list is a broad and deep witness list that can cover every potential contingency, every potential exit ramp that the defendant may have to try to uh, justify um, his or her conduct that you believe, based upon your evidence, is criminal. And so I think what you're seeing is just how thorough Jack Smith's investigation has been and that there's no one 
who has seen or heard anything at Mar-a-Lago regarding these documents who is going to be um, immune from testifying if they believe they have relevant information. CNN is also reporting the prosecutors may call to testify people who were in the room at the former president's New Jersey golf club when he discussed allegedly showed the classified plan to attack Iran. How important would it be for jurors to hear from from those witnesses? Very important, because, as you know, um, Donald Trump has said that uh, he was you know, showing around some news clippings um, and not anything like that, even though his words were contrary to that. So I think you're going to need something to corroborate the tape. Um, and the corroboration, best corroboration, will be that people were actually at the table and could say exactly what they saw he was flashing around and showing them. So I think it makes sense to do that. Um, and if there, uh, if there, you know, evidence is, as the prosecution has alleged, that's going to be a real problem for Donald Trump. There is this much talked about New York Times poll that you know about from uh, over the weekend shows, as you know, that, that Trump leading Biden in five out of six key swing states. The poll also indicates about six percent of voters potentially determinative margin would switch their support in those states from Trump to Biden if the former president was convicted, sentenced in a criminal trial. Um, I mean, if Trump is found guilty sometime next year before the nominating convention, do you think the party would possibly change horses midstream? I mean, is that even possible? Sure, because the nomination process will not be over at that point, Anderson. And that's why I've been saying I'm in this for the long haul. I am in this to the convention because circumstances are going to change and change significantly. And not only because of the trial that starts on the day before Super Tuesday, but there's going to be testimony coming out all through that period of time that's going to be extraordinarily damning of the president. My guess is my first witness would be Mark Meadows. You know, not some rogue Democrat prosecutor, not some product of the two-tiered system of justice that Donald Trump talks about, but a founder of the Freedom Caucus from North Carolina who served as his final chief of staff has immunity. And Anderson, he's going to be sitting 20 feet from Donald Trump in the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., and telling a jury under oath that Donald Trump committed crimes right before his eyes to try to overturn the 2020 election. That is determining type of evidence. And I believe, and I've said this, the walls are closing in. He will be convicted. And you will see people change their votes and run from him in droves, not only when the conviction happens, but as that evidence begins to develop and people hear it from folks like Mark Meadows under oath. Um, he didn't show up to the debate last night, but in a new interview with Univision, the former president reiterated his willingness to use the Department of Justice to go after his political opponents if he wins back the White House, saying, and I quote, if I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say go down and indict them, end quote. That's according to a transcript released by Univision. It's unclear to me who he thinks he'd be running against if he wins another presidential term, since he'd obviously be constitutionally barred from being elected a third time. Nevertheless, um, do you have any doubt that that's what a second term of a Trump administration would be, uh, a retribution Four years of retribution? No, I mean, he, he, he has said, I will be your retribution. And think about how different, for all the folks out there who are undecided about what to do with this election, think about how different Donald Trump is in 2023 than he was in 2016. In 2016, at the convention, he said, I am your voice. Now he's saying, I am your retribution. Um, this is outrageous. And think about it. You had good folks like Bill Barr, 
who were keeping him on the rails and, and stopping him from doing stuff like this at the Justice Department. Nobody as good and decent and honest as Bill Barr is going to agree to be Donald Trump's attorney general if he ever became president again. That's another thing voters have to think about. The fact is that 40 of his 44 cabinet-level officials have said not only wouldn't they work for him again, they wouldn't support him to be president at all again. I mean, this is incredibly damning for people who work with them every day as president, Anderson. Yeah. And so, you know, at the end of the day, um, you will see him try to do things like that. And it's only going to be the country that can stop him. When we have to stop him is right now. We can't let him get the nomination or get in front of these folks. And, you know, you mentioned him not being on the debate stage last night. It's the third time in a row. It's disgraceful. And I think he doesn't want to be there, Anderson, because he knows I'm going to be there because I've been holding him to account from the minute I got into this race. And, you are you know, anybody out there who wants me to be on that stage, go to chrischristie.com. Donate a dollar. Keep me on that debate stage because I'll be there when Donald Trump shows up. And you know I'll hold him to account. We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to talk to you more about last night's Republican debate in Miami, minus the former president, as we just mentioned. And also, uh, later new video just in of American airstrikes on Iranian targets in Syria, plus an up-close report on the fighting in northern Gaza from our Oren Lieberman, who was embedded with Israeli troops. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Back now with Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie. And I want to focus now on the debate and the campaign trail ahead with the Iowa caucuses in New Hampshire primary getting closer. So, Governor, you're called the former president a coward for skipping yet another debate last night. Clearly, the strategy is not hurting him with Republican voters. Isn't it smart for him not to show up? I don't care whether it's smart or not. It's wrong. It's wrong, Anderson. He's asking for the Republican nomination for president, yet he won't discuss his record. And I understand why he doesn't want to. If I were out on bail in four different jurisdictions, I wouldn't have to explain it. If I had promised to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it and now call the people who believed it dumb for believing it, I wouldn't want to explain that. I wouldn't want to explain $7.8 trillion in debt when I said I was going to balance the budget. I understand you don't want to, but you have an obligation to the voters to be able to do it. And I know the polls show right now that it's not hurting him, 
but I believe it will as people start to get closer to this and are going to make their decision to vote. Um, and I bet you in January he'll be at one of these debates in either Iowa or New Hampshire because the polls will force him to. You're heading to Israel tomorrow. On the debate stage last night, you said the fact is that Israel and their intelligence community failed to protect Israeli citizens uh, from the, the October 7th attacks you were referring. Um, what do you want to see the Israeli government do about that failure? Because Benjamin Netanyahu has not accepted any level of blame at this point. Chiefs of intelligence services of the military over there have. Uh, he has not. Obviously, there's going to be some sort of a reckoning once the fighting has stopped. Um, but what do you think that he, he should do or they should do? Well, look, his first obligation, Anderson, is to win the war. And that's his first obligation, is to protect the territorial integrity of Israel, to make sure he protects the safety and security of his citizens, and to degrade Hamas so they can never do this again. Um, those are his obligations. We're going to have plenty of time for an after-action report afterwards to figure out how high up in the, in the chain the responsibility goes and whether it includes the prime minister or not. But in the end, we know that it was a failure um, because there's no way that Hamas should have been able to do that on October 7th. Um, if the intelligence community was on top of their game. So we know mistakes were made, um, and, but the reckoning will come later on. First and foremost is to protect the in territorial integrity of Israel, protect the safety and security of its citizens, and degrade Hamas. And what I also hope the government does is keep their eye on the ball while they're doing this. Continued isolation of Iran is the greatest security move that Israel can make. And that means continuing to make smart, fair agreements with other Arab countries in the Middle East so that Iran and its desire to wipe Israel off the map gets more and more isolated in the Middle East. Do you think Israel should, should push toward uh, some sort of a two-state solution? I mean, they've been like playing with the tax revenues going to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, um, which seems an odd thing to both be going after Hamas and weaken the Palestinian Authority so that they can't pay their bills and can't pay their security people? Look, conversations of a two-state solution, Anderson, um, had to have stopped um, definitively when a terrorist group in the Gaza Strip winds up attacking you and killing 1,400 um, of your citizens. And so there was a ceasefire that everybody's talking about now before October 7th. Right, Hamas violated it. It was Hamas that violated it, right? So, look, I, I think there can't be any discussion right now about a two-state solution until you dispose with Hamas's ability to be able to bring that kind of terrorist attack again. Then we can have more conversations about an ultimate solution. But right now, Hamas has ended those conversations by taking the terrorist action that they took on October 7th. You've been critical of Republican candidates aligning themselves too closely, obviously, with the former president. Donald Trump had nothing to do with Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's strategy to have Republicans run on a 15-week abortion ban. Do you think that issue could cost the GOP the White House or control of the House next year? Depends on who the candidate is for president of the United States, Anderson. Um, but I've made it very clear that my view is Dobbs was decided correctly and each state should be able to make its own judgment. Um, and the people of that state should be able to participate in that judgment. You saw it happen in Ohio on Tuesday night. Um, the fact is that folks should be able to make their own judgment on this issue. That's the way the founders set that every issue that was not covered by the Constitution reverts to the states. And uh, I don't think that the federal government should be involved in the middle of this in any way. Um, and as far as the, the losses in Virginia, 
Um, I, I absolutely believe that Donald Trump played a role in that as well. Um, the fact is um, that he is um, the front runner in this party. He's seen as one of the faces of this party, if not the face of the party, until we replace him. Um, and, you know, you saw what happened in Kentucky, Anderson. Daniel Cameron sold his soul, completely embraced Donald Trump. And in one of the reddest states in this country, he lost to Governor Bashir. Um, this is unacceptable stuff. And I saw it in my own home state of New Jersey, where the state, uh, the Republicans in my state lost five seats in the state legislature in the lower house and one in the Senate. Um, and a lot of the campaign was geared uh, towards uh, going after Donald Trump. Um, he is political poison. Mm. He is electoral poison for anybody down the ticket. Ask Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. Ask Herschel Walker in Georgia. Um, you know, ask Carrie Lake in Arizona. Um, these are all people, Blake Masters in Arizona. They're all people who went the Trump way and are now not in office. Um, we need to move away from him. He is the problem. He is the poison. Mm. Chris Christie, thank you for your time. Anderson, always great to be on. Love to come and talk to you after I get back from Israel. Yeah, we'd like that. Thank you. Up next, more on Israel's war with Hamas. Our Orrin Lieberman was embedded with the IDF and got a firsthand look at what Gaza has become with Israeli troops on the ground. That, plus new efforts to get civilians out of harm's way, just ahead. A short time ago, the Pentagon released new video showing U.S. airstrikes against an Iranian facility in Syria that took place on Wednesday. A senior military official says the facility was likely housing weapons used against U.S. forces in the region. In Israel and Gaza, this is new video that just came to us. Explosions over uh, northern Gaza more than a month after Hamas slaughtered more than 1,400 people, mostly civilians. And after a military response, it has claimed 35 Israeli soldiers, according to the IDF, and more than 10,000 Palestinians, according to the Hamas-controlled health ministry. The White House said today that Israel has agreed to formalize brief four-hour pauses in fighting daily in areas of northern Gaza. These windows are to allow for aid to enter and civilians to leave. In a moment, we'll be taken inside Gaza by our Oren Lieberman. We should first note that journalists embedded with the IDF in Gaza operate under the observation of Israeli commanders in the field. They're not permitted to move unaccompanied within the Gaza Strip. As a condition to enter Gaza under IDF escort, outlets have to submit all materials and footage to the Israeli military for review prior to publication. CNN has agreed to these terms in order to provide a limited window into Israel's operations in Gaza. Here's Oren's report. Through the breach, we enter northern Gaza at the Erez border crossing. The land here, once fertile farmland, is barren, and the trees that might have provided enemy cover destroyed. In the distance, smoke from an Israeli airstrike is a stark reminder that this is day 34 of a war that may stretch much longer. On Thursday, the IDF chief of staff and the head of the country's internal security service entered Gaza and promised strength through cooperation. Everyone is doing everything, said General Herzi just so you can be as strong as possible. Along our path in northern Gaza, the signs of civilian life have given way to the constant hum of drones and the distant echoes of artillery. Our time with the IDF began at the coordination base for the border crossing, the first international media to visit the site. The terror attack on October 7th hit hard here. The scars of machine gun fire and RPGs still visible. The base was mostly empty on the holiday, 
but not entirely. The IDF says nine soldiers were killed here and three kidnapped. It took 12 hours for Israel to regain control of the base. Now it's one of the main gates to Gaza. We stop at an overlook near the town of Jabalia. One of the things uncovered here on this hill near Jabalia is a meeting point of three different tunnels. And you can see if you take a look, that's one, two, three. They came together here and it let Hamas move underground quickly below the feet and out of sight. Colonel Tal, the tank commander, says there were many explosives here. There were many trenches. There were a lot of weapons and ammunition. We found here a storage site with many explosives against tanks, RPGs. Even from a distance, the scale of the destruction is stunning. Apartment buildings, homes, neighborhoods decimated. Colonel Tal says the area is almost completely evacuated. We don't see civilians in our eyes. We see sometimes terrorists, but the majority of civilians haven't been here in a while. They've all gone south in the direction of the heart of the Strip. As we talk, we hear rocket fire and see the trails of the launches, triggering red alerts in Ashdod. After about 90 minutes inside northern Gaza, we make our way out, hugging the border wall for safety. Even here, so close to the exit, we stop briefly so the dust clears and we can make sure the way ahead is safe. In the distance, once again, the smoke from another strike. Israel has said that it has effectively encircled Gaza City as Israeli troops make their way towards the center of Gaza City. The IDF spokesperson said earlier today they are deepening their operation around Gaza. Anderson, a lot of that focus now trying to get at Hamas's tunnel infrastructure underneath the city as they close in on what they see as the government and functioning military center for Hamas in Gaza City. Orin Lieberman, thanks so much. Perspective now from Barack Ravid, political and foreign policy reporter at Axios. Um, Brock, what's your impression of what Oren saw, both the military base that was attacked on October 7th and three tunnels converging there and the meeting point for a weapon storage area near Jabalia? Hi, Anderson. Well, you know, uh, the, the irony is that um, this base, and I heard it from people uh, who served there uh, for years, um, this base is not only the entry point and the exit point from Gaza, but it is also the headquarters of the uh, government coordination uh, office, which is the unit that is in charge of helping uh, uh, Palestinians to get out of Gaza for, uh, you know, medical uh, uh, appointments. And, and, you know, it runs all the workers from Gaza that enter uh, Israel. And this was one of the targets that Hamas attacked uh, during uh, on uh, October 7th. It's now pretty clear, based on all the intelligence that Hamas had about the inner workings of the kibbutzim all along the border, that some of the, at least some of the workers from Gaza who were working in those kibbutzim, whether it was over years or months or whatever, they were gathering information. Yeah, that's definitely one of the one of the things that are being investigated, and and I guess will be part of this huge investigation that we will see uh, after the war. Although I have to tell you something, uh, it, it this issue came up in one of the meetings of the Israeli uh, uh, security cabinet. 
And Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, the ultra-nationalist, uh, said that Israel should not allow 4,000 workers from Gaza who got stuck in Israel after the war started, that shouldn't let them go back because maybe they were spies. And the head of the Shin Bet security services told him, listen, we vetted all of those people to the bone, and we don't think that they were involved in any way in the attack. So I think it is still unclear mm. how much those people were really involved in gathering intelligence on the, on the villages around the border. That's interesting. Because the people on the kibbutzim certainly believe that, I mean, they knew where yes, the weapon storage exactly. were. They knew who, who was on the security details, how big the, each security detail was in, in Kafaraza and, and other places. Um, the the humanitarian pauses or these pauses that Israel now has, what are you hearing about the behind the scenes of how those were agreed to? That's clearly something Antony Blinken went to Israel with. Yes, it's, you know, this, this wouldn't have happened without, let's say, significant pressure from the Biden administration. I think the discussion, the serious discussion about it started when Blinken was in the region last week and the Israelis were concerned that when they heard the word pause from Blinken, they thought that what he really means is a ceasefire. And it took several days of talks between the Israelis and the Biden administration for the Biden administration to tell them, listen, we're not talking about a ceasefire. We're not trying to stop you. When we say pause, we mean pause. We mean several hours. We mean for humanitarian aid. We mean for safe passage. We don't want a ceasefire. And only after the Israelis got convinced, they started a serious uh, uh, effort to draft a plan to do it. And they actually started doing it today. It was the first day. They did it in two neighborhoods in northern Gaza that they announced a pause of four hours that allowed to people to get out of their houses, buy food, get water, get medicine, which is something that did not happen for a month. I'll tell you another interesting thing. If you'll ask the Israeli government about it, Prime Minister Netanyahu, Minister of Defense Gallant, they will tell you that nothing happened. There's nothing new because they don't want to uh, uh, brag about those humanitarian pauses because it is a very politically sensitive issue inside Israel because Israeli public opinion is very much against that. Mm. And in terms of um, what happens if in success. I mean, if, as, as the IDF defines it, as the Israeli government defines it, if Hamas is defeated, I mean, are there active discussions about what a post-Hamas Gaza looks like? I know Netanyahu, you know, said that there would be overall security, you know, uh, Israel would need to, to be in control of overall security for, for some time. But, I mean, who's going to be the mayor of Gaza? Who's going to be running Gaza? Um, well, that's a very good question. And several ministers, or even the majority of ministers in the current Israeli government, when you ask them that question, they will tell you, oh, we have no intention of bringing back the Palestinian Authority. And then you ask them, okay, so if not the Palestinian Authority, do you have any other ideas? So I think the Israelis are still toying in all those fantasies of, you know, bringing the Egyptians, bringing the Saudis, bringing uh, the Emiratis. All of those countries have no intention yeah. of setting foot in Gaza or paying one dime in Gaza if it's not under the Palestinian Authority. And I think that when we'll get closer to the day after, this is going to be a serious point of contention. 
And just quickly, you and I talked a while ago about they were, uh, the Israelis were holding up the tax revenues for the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. What, are they still doing that? They're still doing that. And the Palestinian Authority told them, if you're not giving us all of our money, we don't even, we're not even going to take half of it, which is what the Israelis were willing to give them. And I'll tell you something that I heard from several U.S. officials, that they say we made a mistake. Because when the Israelis even started talking about this thing, we should have told them this is a red line. You are not going to do it. And the U.S. did not uh, put the, its foot mm. in the sand, did not say it was a red line. And the Israelis did it. Uh, Rock Ravid, thank you. Appreciate it. Just ahead, in addition to our top story about the former president's legal troubles, there are also legal issues mounting for those who supported his effort to overturn the 2020 election. Arizona's attorney general spoke to CNN about her investigation into the alleged fake electors scheme. Less willing to talk to CNN, the fake electors themselves. Eric Kyung La has an exclusive investigation next. Also tonight, Los Angeles police investigating a fight between pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian supporters outside the Museum of Tolerance after the screening of a film uh, that showed... Uh, footage uh, that was taken by Hamas gunmen on October 7th during the attack. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. We note in our top story tonight that some of the possible witnesses against the former president in his classified documents trial will be people whose names you may not know, but who were certainly in his orbit. That is also the case in another investigation, this time in Arizona, involving the alleged fake elector scheme to overturn the 2020 election. The state's Democratic attorney general just spoke to CNN about the investigation, about which little is known, only that it follows in the path of similar prosecutions in Michigan and Georgia. Our Kyung La also tried to speak to some of the people who claimed to actually be electors for Arizona back in 2020. Let me show you how that went. Here's Kyung La's report. At a rally for the 2024 U.S. Senate race. Arizona candidate Carrie Lake. I'm not going to let a guy who's trying to imprison his political opponent call me or you a threat to democracy. One of the country's top spreader of lies about the 2020 election results. God bless State 48. We find in her crowd Arizona State Senator Anthony Kern. Hello, Mr. Kern. Hi, good Young to see you. Young law from CNN. Hi. You may not recognize Kern at first glance. But this is him here at The Signing, a video tweeted by the Arizona Republican Party on December 14, 2020, when 11 fake electors gathered weeks after the 2020 election to sign this document claiming to be duly elected and qualified to cast Arizona's 11 electoral votes for Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida, number of votes 11. But Trump lost Arizona in 2020. We are taking it very seriously. Arizona Attorney General Chris Mays wants to know more about these fake electors. We are in the middle of our investigation. Um, we have multiple investigators and attorneys assigned to it, and we're going to do a professional job. Sounds fairly robust. It's robust. It's a serious matter. 
Back to Anthony Kern, who signed the fake elector document. Can you tell me a little bit about I can, you signing that? Yeah, we can probably talk. Yeah? Someday. But what Maybe about now? At every major turn of Arizona's 2020 election lie, you can spot him. The guy back there, that's Kern. This is a so-called election integrity hearing held by state Republicans on November 30th, 2020, fashioned to look like an official hearing. It's not. Hell yeah, get on the ground! Weeks later, on January 6th, Kern traveled to the U.S. Capitol. In D.C. supporting Trump, he tweeted, where he was pictured in a restricted area of the Capitol steps during the riot. There's no indication he was violent or entered the Capitol, and he has not been charged in connection with January 6th. Later in 2021, as Arizona's most populous county, Maricopa, hand-counted all of his 2020 ballots in a partisan-led failed attempt to overturn the state election results, Anthony Kern was there again, counting ballots. We wanted to ask State Senator Kern about how all this began. Can we talk about whether you knew that that was a lie, that document? Why do you, why do you think it's a lie? So do you believe that Trump still won in 2020 then? Why, why would you think alternate electors are a lie? Arizona was among seven key swing states that saw fake electors sign documents to subvert the electoral college process. Prosecutors have filed charges against some of their fake electors in two states, Michigan and Georgia. Prosecutors Arizona's AG says she's speaking with. I have been in communication with both of those offices, and I'm not going to say any more than that. With the Department of Justice, are you in communication with the Department of Justice? Same, same answer. I've been, we have communicated uh, with those offices, and I'm not going to say any more than that. Have you spoken to the Department of Justice or the State Attorney General? About uh, I'm, the only the one I've spoken to is CNN. We contacted all of Arizona's 11 alternate electors. Lorraine Pellegrino, secretary of the fake electors. Hello. Hi, are you Lorraine? Yes. Hi, Lorraine. Um, my name is Kyung La. That's why I'm holding a microphone. Um, I'm a reporter from CNN. Okay, thank you. I was hoping that we could talk. She did not want to talk. You don't want to answer anything about the alternate electors, ma'am? Tyler Bauer, the COO of right-wing group Turning Point USA, ignored our calls and texts. Tyler Bauer. Bauer? Yeah. He is not here today. It's not in the office. But his spokesman immediately called us after we went to the office to say he has not spoken to the DOJ or Arizona's AG's office. I'm trying to reach Senator Hoffman. Is he available? The rest of the 11 did not return our calls. We did reach Samuel Moorhead, Gila County, Arizona Republican Party leader. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm fine, but I also know that I am in a position where it's not very prudent to talk to any member of the media for anything. Goodbye. Oh, okay. Arizona Attorney General Mays, a Democrat, says while she can't share too many details of her investigation, she said it is far-reaching. Does your investigation potentially reach to Donald Trump? So I'm not going to comment on that um, because that's uh, sort of a part of the investigation. I'm not going to uh, provide any sort of midstream updates on that. Um, we will see where the facts lead us. And King Law joins us now. How closely are Arizona officials following the fake electric case in Georgia? 
Well, AZ, AG, Chris Mays, she didn't get too specific in our interview, but let's remind everybody about the recent and stunning turns in the Georgia case. You have Ken Chesbrough, who was the architect of the fake electors plot. He already pleaded guilty to felony conspiracy connected to the plot. And then you have former Trump attorney General Ellis, who also pleaded guilty, and she pleaded guilty to aiding and abetting false statements about the election to Georgia's Senate. That is a felony. Now, whether or not that has a nexus or a connection to Arizona, at this point, we simply don't know because they are in the middle of their investigation in Arizona. We just have to see what the attorney general decides. Mm. Thank you. Appreciate it. Next, intolerance on display at a museum of tolerance. will tell you about the latest eruption of violence in this country over the October 7th massacre in the war in Gaza. Police in Los Angeles are investigating the violence last night outside of all places, the city's Museum of Tolerance. More now from CNN's Stephanie Elam. Clashes at LA's Museum of Tolerance over a documentary screened inside. The end to a night of intense emotion. I, I couldn't watch all of it either. It's, it's difficult. The film, called Bearing Witness, features more than 40 minutes of actual footage of the October 7th Hamas attacks. Actor Gal Gadot, who is from Israel and has been outspoken on social media since the attacks, was involved in bringing the film to L.A., according to multiple reports, but she was not in attendance. And most of the roughly 200 attendees had left the event by the time this brawl broke out between pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian demonstrators. Before the film even started, a small pro-Palestinian demonstration formed outside the theater as LAPD officers screened vehicles and circled the museum. Some of the attendees say they felt compelled to see the atrocities with their own eyes. We need to fight against terrorism. And in order to see it, in order to fight it, you have to see it and believe it and feel it. We say Lador Vador from generation to generation and people should know. And I can't know exactly what it was unless I watch it. The Hollywood Reporter, which was inside the screening, reports that the protests were audible through the wall of the theater, prompting an Israel Defense Forces spokesperson who introduced the film to tell the audience they believe some are trying to cast doubt on the Hamas attacks, saying, quote, I believe we are hearing some of it right now outside. The LAPD said the event concluded with no issues, but that one hour later, a small group of demonstrators returned, leading to the brawl. Violence outside that attendees say won't overshadow the atrocities they saw inside on screen. I will carry it with me to pass that story on to the next generation and the next generation. And LAPD did say that they took two reports for battery. They continue to investigate this, but at this point, they don't have any suspects in custody. The Los Angeles mayor, Karen Bass, coming out, calling the violence unacceptable and calling on people here to really uh, just calm down and stand together uh, as Angelinos in face of what we're seeing worldwide. Anderson. Stephanie Elam, thanks. We'll be right back. The news continues. The source with Caitlin Collins starts now. See you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.